0: This is an AMI podcast.
1: Welcome to My Life in Books, authors talking books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England.
2: Hello, and welcome to My Life in Books, the show that sets out to read between the lines of an author's work and riffle through their back pages. I'm your host, Red Sale, and joining me today is a novelist who cut her writing teeth on the world's longest-running drama series, rising to become its leading script writer, senior producer, and its most trusted chronicler. In addition to her 35 years of working in radio, Joanna Toy has also written for many of Britain's leading TV soap operas, including EastEnders and Coronation Street. And since 2019, she's been enthralling readers with her Shopgirls series of novels. Set in the fictional town of Hinton, just outside Birmingham in the English Midlands, the series follows the fortunes of the staff at Marlowe's, the town's elegant department store, as they battle to keep calm and carry on despite the Second World War. Packed with drama, social history, perseverance and a sense of community the series has found a particularly receptive audience since the onset of the pandemic. So, before I introduce Joanna Toy, here's a clip from the latest book in the series, The Victory Girls.
3: He was putting a brave face on things. He had to. But Lily knew how concerned he was about Gladys having the baby without him around. On their wedding day last year, he'd asked Lily, as her best friend, to look after Gladys when he wasn't there and if he never came back. Bill was a wireless operator on a cruiser, escorting convoys and under daily threat from U-boats and air attack, but he and Lily had never before spoken seriously about the danger he was in. Most serving men on leave didn't talk about it. Her own brothers didn't. Bill's words had brought Lily up short and made her feel slightly sick, and that was before there was a baby on the way. Bill had hardly got the words out when the empty train came clanking in under the blacked-out roof. "'It banged against the buffers with a screech of brakes "'and a theatrical puff of steam. "'Funny, isn't it?' said Bill. "'When you start your leave, the train's always at least an hour late, "'but when it comes to going back, it's bang on time.' "'Hello!' Gladys joined them. "'She was trying to sound cheerful, "'but it was about as convincing as the bacon substitute Macon, "'made with mutton, that the government had briefly tried to promote. "'Apart from two spots of rouge.' Her round face was pale, except around the eyes, which were already suspiciously pink. Bill put his arm round her protectively. I'll let everyone else pile on first, he said. It's not worth trying to get a seat. Lily nodded, and they stood there, the four of them, no one really having anything to say, buffeted by people pushing past and around them. Lily hated goodbyes. Didn't everyone? But Gladys would be in bits afterwards and Lily didn't want her having to walk home on her own. It was lucky that Bill's departure was on their half day from Marlowe's. The two of them had been friends since Lily's very first day at the town's big store. They'd seen each other through several ups and downs, and Lily wasn't about to fail Gladys in this one.
2: Joanna Toy, welcome to My Life in Books.
3: Thank
0: you very much indeed. Thank you for asking me.
3: So,
2: the series begins in 1941, in the midst of the Second World War. Can you just set the scene for us?
0: Right. So the Shop Girls novels are uh, set in a small Midland town, a fictional Midland town, and they centre on uh, the lives, the working lives, the home lives of three young women who meet there as teenagers, really. And what ensues, the books, as you say, uh, started uh, in uh, June 1941, when Lily, my main character, gets her job at the store at my Marlowe's department store, which is the beginning of a real journey, as we say, for her. She has just left school. She's quite overawed by this imposing emporium, really, it is. And she meets there Gladys, who becomes a good friend, and another character, Beryl, who's a little bit spiky in the beginning, a bit of a problem character. But as the books progress, we find out a bit more about her background and her sort of psychology, And uh, they all form a a friendship, which is really important and bonding for them. Lily is very fortunate because she has a very stable home life. Her mother is a widow, but she is really the beating heart of the books, I think. Uh, Dora, the mother, and she holds everything together, really, at home. Uh, Lily has two brothers who are away fighting, one in the Navy, one in the Army. And as the books progress, of course, we follow the course of the war, with all the dramas that that entails.
2: And Marlowe's is very much the beating heart location of the book. As you say, it's an Edwardian emporium. It's one of these wonderful shops like Selfridges or Harrods, where it has its own community, it has its own way of doing things, and it's a meeting place for different Stratas of society, and it also reflects how the war has been brought home to Britain.
0: Yes, I mean, I think of Marlowe's almost as another character in the book, because it it kind of, as I was writing, took on a life of its own. It's actually based on a a real store, uh, Beattie's, in Wolverhampton, in the Midlands, near where I live which began life in 1877 as a small shop and which expanded to become first a department store and then a small store group. It seemed to me that a department store was just a brilliant setting for all the reasons that you've outlined. It's a complete world in itself. You've got all the social strata there, from the owner, Cedric Marlowe, down to the junior members of staff like Lily, through the managerial ranks. Uh, Lily works for a wonderful boss called Miss Frobisher, who seems quite daunting, but uh, actually, of course, turns out to have a real heart and a story of her own. So it was an irresistible setting for me. And in terms of the war uh, impinging, uh, again, this is based on research of what actually happened at Beatty's. There were, of course, all sorts of restrictions that had to come in. The windows couldn't be lighted. The windows had to be taped up with sort of splinternet tape, it was called. Also, the second floor of the Beatty's department store, and I imported this straight into the first of the books, uh, was given over to storing parts for the air ministry. Uh, there were lots and lots of factories round about Wolverhampton making spitfires and hurricanes and parts for, for such things. So that was commandeered. And it gave me a wonderful plot line because Jim, the person who becomes Lily's young man, has to move his department down next to hers in order to make way for this space on the second floor. So there are all kinds of things like that that really have fed into and helped along the action of the novels.
2: And by 1941, the store is staffed predominantly by women and old men and the occasional young man who, like Jim, are deemed medically unfit for the army. In fact, Jim has very poor eyesight.
0: Yes, that's right. Um, It it occurred to me very early on that because I had chosen to set these novels in Civvy Street, if you like, and not put my characters in the services, it was going to be quite a problem uh, having enough young men around. But Jim, unfortunately, uh, is one of those children who should probably have been patched as a child. He he has good vision in his right eye, but very little in his left. And when he goes for his army medical, much to his huge disappointment, is turned down. So he is conveniently around. And uh, in in terms of other young men, Gladys ends up with a boyfriend, subsequently her husband, who is serving in the Navy. And Beryl's husband initially joins up. And then I won't give too many plot lines away, but uh, he has has to come back to England. So, yes, it was quite an interesting challenge. I managed to keep one of Lily's brothers in the UK, but the other brother is serving in the Western Desert, and uh, he is very much part of the whole pushing Rommel into the sea push, which took him through Tobruk and El Alamein with associated alarms, really, for those at home.
2: And you clearly enjoyed your research for these books. As you've indicated, you link the action at home to the actual events that are going on in the Second World War. And one of the things that's really interesting is, especially in this day and age, the lag in news coming back from the various fronts to home.
0: This has been uh, the main difference. A lot of people say to me, oh, you know, what they went through in the war, it's kind of like what we've been going through globally now. Yes and no. Um, there were, you know, kind of similarities at the very beginning. In the UK, we were queuing for tins of tomatoes and pasta and toilet rolls. There was a massive shortage of toilet rolls, and of course, Dora, Lily's mom, has to go out every single day. Uh, she has to go out shopping uh, for what is available and what is available on coupon. But in terms of communication, we recently, in, in what we've uh, gone through with the pandemic the one thing we have been able to rely on is communication, particularly the internet with uh, all sorts of ways of keeping up and keeping in touch with people. On the other hand, the one thing that they could do in the war was see each other physically. And every time, in the, particularly in the most recent two books uh, that I've been writing, every time the friends linked arms or hugged and kissed on meeting It gave me a little bit of a pang, really, because that's what uh, people have have been deprived of. In the war, of course, if you were willing to uh, dodge the bombs and go out in the blackout, you could also go socialising. And because home wasn't always terribly comfortable, because there was no central heating and people had outside toilets and uh, running water in the kitchen, that was about it. Um, You could go dancing, and my characters go dancing, they go to the cinema and can go out and enjoy themselves.
2: The books have proved to be hugely popular during the pandemic especially. And I was wondering whether it is that sense of community, that closely observed social history that has appealed to male and female readers alike
0: yeah that's very interesting. I was initially quite amazed when I used to go out and do library talks and that kind of thing. The audience would be yeah, perhaps sixty percent women, but quite a lot of men would come along as well and you know the books they're not kind of war books. there's no violence in in them in that traditional way that you know men would want to read something which was active and a kind of a thriller. But I think the thing about the war is. It's difficult not to be interested in it. It's just such a fascinating period. You know, I think history tells us a lot about ourselves. And I think people were tested in the war in a way that even what we've been through recently in the past sort of 15, 18 months globally, I mean, of course, has impinged on, on, on people in many, many ways. But the war went on for six years. And I think you have to remember that. I think the other thing is that the war feels still, it's a couple of generations away. I think for many of us, our grandparents or parents went through the war, and it was very real. It stayed with them, whether they talked about it or not. And the after effects of the war, the rationing that went on in Britain until 54, uh, before everything was completely off ration. Uh, so it really did leave a, a lasting impact. <laughs>
2: This week, I'm in conversation with novelist Joanna Toy. And after the break, we'll come back and examine more of the social history in her Shopgirls series.
1: Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-971-1999. This is My Life in Books on AMI-audio. More from Red and his guests this week, in a moment. Welcome back to My Life in Books on AMI-audio with host Red Sale. And this week, I'm in conversation
2: with Joanna Toy about her Shopgirls series set during the Second World War. Now, before the break, we were talking about the social history within the series. You really have dug down on your research. And I think nowhere is that better demonstrated by the food that is coming out of Lily's mum, Dora's, kitchen. They really did have to eat some fairly horrendous things by our standards today. I'm thinking particularly of
0: snook. Snook, the famous or the infamous snook. It was this horrible greasy fish that came in tins south african i believe i'm sure there are delicious ways of cooking it chefs have probably come up with all sorts now but at the time it was not uh, something that the british palate certainly enjoyed and despite rolling it in oatmeal before cooking it dora lily's mum, even she who's a brilliant cook can hardly make it palatable I referred quite a lot to a 1935 cookery book, which my mother-in-law had received with her magnet cooker from GEC, the General Electric Company. And although that was uh, in many ways too lavish for the war, because it was about things made with mayonnaise and so on, of course, you couldn't get eggs. That was quite useful just for the plainness of a lot of the cookery, which meant that anything which was off ration, of course, was highly desirable. Uh, Dora is pretty, not, not exactly straight laced, but she's quite a you know, law abiding character. And there are a couple of occasions where she manages to get a tin of salmon and feels very, very guilty about it. But really, it was very, very difficult. Uh, Dora does manage to make most of the things which we know about the Walton pie. She puts perhaps a bit of mustard in it to, to zizz it up a bit. But the diet was pretty bland.
2: Well, yes, I really don't fancy the sound of macon, which is the mutton bacon, or oatmeal and lentil sausages. I was wondering, did you try any of these recipes?
0: (laughs) I couldn't possibly inflict it on anybody. And I think actually oatmeal and lentil sausages, you know, are actually probably quite good for you, but now we'd have a lot of spices and herbs and things to put in. And that was not necessarily a big thing in English cuisine. I mean, curry was quite popular because of the whole kind of colonial influence, but it's not something that came out of uh, Dora's Kitchen. The canteen at Marlowe's does try curried mutton at one point, and that doesn't go down very well. There's a a big sale of peppermints from the uh, local corner shop after that, I think.
2: Now, Dora is very fortunate in the later books because she has made friends with a Canadian serviceman who manages to supplement her kitchen.
0: Yeah, that's right. In the early books, Dora is kind of a, not a background character, but a a medium-level character. She doesn't push herself forwards. And as the story went on, I'm thinking... Well, you know, Dora is only in her early 40s. She's been widowed young. I would like her to have a story for herself, which is not just about being somebody's mum. I don't just want her to be a dispenser of food and wise advice. And it seemed to me that it would be more interesting to introduce a Canadian character than the kind of standard American uh, There is an American serviceman who comes in in later books in a, in a different way because it seemed a shame not to acknowledge their presence in the UK as well. But the Canadian corporal, Sam, becomes quite close with Dora and with the family. And Lily and Jim, they're very excited by the thoughts of uh, everything that they could get from their Canadian base. Sugar and Jim is fantasizing about T-bone steaks, not that he's ever had one. But um, Sam, in the end, also has to uh, go home to Canada and he sends parcels to them which are an absolute lifeline, particularly at Christmas, he can send dried fruit. and Dora is a wonderful baker. So the fact that she could make some kind of Christmas pudding or Christmas cake is just incredibly exciting. Jam in tins, shortbread butter, which of course, fats were rationed. So I mean, he is, of course, more than just a, a kind of a grocery delivery service, they all become very fond of him. But it was really, really important. Uh, if you could get food from abroad, that was such a help.
2: And as we've seen recently in the pandemic, in extremists, people do pull together to help each other along. And Dora is often baking cakes for other people and pooling her resources for the special occasions, for victories at Tobruk, for weddings, for engagements and for the birth of children, because... There is also a lot of love and relationships developing through this series of books.
0: Yes, I don't want to give the impression that they're some kind of grim, misery memoir type read. You know, I like to think that they are warm and homely and that um, a reader at the end is left with a sort of satisfying feeling that they've spent time with real people who they would like to know and that they've actually got to know through the course of the books. I mean, I think there is an awful lot about community, community spirit, about the importance of family and the importance and the power of friendship. I mean, it's friendship that really pulls these three girls together and then through with interventions from older characters like like Dora to give them a bit of guidance. But so much of it is actually Lily and Gladys and Beryl maturing and becoming young women through everything that they've gone through together.
2: There's also quite a bit of adventure going on. There's a fair sprinkling of spivs and black marketeers, the investigation of whose nefarious activities gradually draw Jim and Lily closer together.
0: Yes, it's very interesting. Uh, Very early on in the series, somebody said to me, Well, Joe, you know, I love your books. Have you got a real villain? And part of me thought, Well, actually, the war is the villain because that is throwing so many dreadful things into the mix. I certainly didn't want a kind of pantomime, moustache twirling villain. The black market story. Again, that uh, came from a real uh, instance. It involves a, a, a scam with coal, which again, of course, was rationed. And I suppose the the character there, Barry, is uh, certainly on the on the spivvy side, and it, it could all spiral very much out of control for for Jim, particularly who this uh, Barry character leans on to try to be his contact in the store. So, yeah, there's there's quite a lot of jeopardy there for, for Jim and indeed for, for Dora because Barry threatens to bring the whole family into things.
2: And jeopardy is also never far away in the form of aerial bombardment. The name of Coventry, the city that was destroyed in the early days of the Blitz, rings throughout the series and... Gladys, Lily's closest friend, has lost all her family in that air raid.
0: Yes, poor Gladys loses both her parents. She's an only child and uh, she comes to live with her grandmother, who's not a very sympathetic character. She's very self-absorbed and really uses Gladys like a skivvy, which enrages Lily, who is one of those people with a really big heart. She can't bear injustice. She can't bear to see anybody being hard done by. And it enrages Dora as well, who gets to know Gladys's situation. Uh, Because Dora is someone who takes the attitude of, you know, if you want a helping hand, look on the end of your arm, sort of thing, and she'd do anything for anybody. She can't understand a selfish old person who just takes to her bed when there's no reason for it, except idleness as she sees it. On Lily's very first day in the store, there is an air-raid warning. So the action starts straight away, really. It throws Lily together with characters that she might not otherwise come into contact with, i.e. the customers who are sort of trapped in the store in the underground shelter with the staff. And, you know, again, nobody knows for how long. The, the lights are on because we're underground, but, you know, they're, they're swinging with the, with the power of the implosions uh, elsewhere. And there is, in fact, not wanting to give too much away, uh, a fairly serious incident of bombing, uh, which comes right to the heart of the community.
2: And without giving too much away, because of the resilience and the make, do and mend attitude that prevails at Marlowe's, that also provides an opportunity.
0: Very much so. The whole make, do and mend and let's grit our teeth and get on with it and keep calm and carry on, you know, all this stuff from the posters does drive through the books, inevitably, because that was the attitude, you know, we shall not falter and fail, we'll fight them on the beaches, all of that stuff rings through. And when Marlowe's does suffer as a result of bombing, yeah, the staff all have to to pull together to uh, make Marlowe's, which has been this kind of iconic, beautiful luxury store, into something which can still function and still have that role. And it's a huge opportunity for Beryl, who is, I suppose, of the three, having said she started off as the spiky one, she is the sassy one. You know, she's got a mouth on her, Beryl. And uh, she sees that um, because four of the shop windows have been blasted out and there's no chance to get plate glass in that size to replace them during the war, she suggests that um, they should be made into little shop units, And she, by this time, has left Marlowe's to set up a little business on her own. And lo and behold, she manages to get her way. She's very persuasive. And having said that, she nearly lands up in trouble several times uh, being a bit too persuasive or people taking that persuasive attitude the wrong way. So it's one of those things whereby every challenge is an opportunity if you're writing this kind of saga, really.
2: And I think that's the thing that I've taken away from all five of the books so far. It is that even amongst the rubble, there are flowers growing. And Lily has a mantra, which is what helps her get out of bed every morning.
0: That's right. She reads it in a a woman's magazine uh, very early on, which is to write down three good things that have happened that day. And it's a very good tip, really. You know, I'm sure it's given us a mindfulness exercise now uh, that we should all reflect and count our blessings rather than comparing ourselves with people who are, uh, in fact, better off, as we perceive it. So Lily does try to write down three good things every day, however big or small. And, uh, you know, not wanting to sound trite, it does, uh, on difficult days, help her. And she's a real problem
2: solver, Lily, almost to a fault. She cannot bear to see unfairness or injustice. And I'm thinking particularly when the evacuees are sent from London to Hinton.
0: Yes, Lily starts off as someone who rather jumps in with both feet. She is an outgoing character and, as you say, she doesn't like to see anyone hard done by. She doesn't like to see unfairness. She is in the fifth book very, very torn because she is now of an age where she feels she could or even should join up. By this time, we've arrived in early 1944. So we know that the war had some way to go. She and the characters in the book didn't know how far it had to go. So she is persuaded, however, because of her love for her job, her love for Jim her fellow feeling for Gladys, who is about to have her baby and who Lily feels needs her in Hinton. But in fact, Lily doesn't need to go away to do her bit. Dora persuades her that she can do her bit at home, keep all those things going as well, if she helps Dora in her voluntary work for the WVS. And um, in 1944, this was when the doodlebugs started to fall on London, And a whole tribe of evacuee children arrives uh, in Hinton. And Lily and Dora are involved in placing them around the town. But Lily is not happy with the fact that one young boy has been separated from his sister first. And secondly, has been placed uh, in a pub as his temporary home. And of course, she goes back to check on him, uh, finds that he's indeed not happy. Lily manages to effect a a brilliant conclusion in placing this child with someone who could really do with some company and in getting his sister to be there as well. So she manages to kind of neatly, for me, (laughs) tie together two sort of plot lines.
2: And that sense of everybody being in it together really does lend itself beautifully to a story that is set round a single location, and I was wondering if this is something that grew out of your time working on The Archers, the longest-running drama in the world.
0: Um, Yes, I think in a way it was an inevitable development. I think when many people think about The Archers, the word that springs to mind, certainly for me, is community and neighbourliness, family, of course, as well. And the, the, the power of, of place is is very important. You know, it used to amuse me when people used to say when I was writing The Archers, oh, wouldn't you like to write something of your own, something original? And I'd be like, well, who do you think writes these scripts? You know, we may be given a storyline and the characters may have been established for 40, 50, 60, 70 years now, incredibly, but, you know, the dialogue is all mine the, the composition of how uh, a week of six scripts were run is all, is all mine. Uh, I mean, I felt a great sense of ownership over, over every single script that, uh, that I wrote. But it's very satisfying to have now created my own world and my own characters who have become as much kind of family and friends to me as the Archers were when I was writing it.
2: Something that I've heard other authors say is that they really feel that the story begins to flow when the characters begin to take control of the plot. And I was wondering whether you felt that both in your soap days and perhaps even more since you started writing your Shop Girls series.
0: Right. I think when writers talk about characters taking control, what they really mean is that the characters have a psychology all of their own, if that doesn't sound too kind of grand and precious. When you're writing characters that you believe in and you want a reader to believe in, you you spend a lot of time in their head and in their inner lives. And it seems to me, certainly everything that I have plotted in inverted commas has arisen out of the characters, really because I wanted to see how they would react when they were put in situations. How would Jim react when a spivy type came along and offered him the chance to make some money on the side? Um, Well, Jim is a very upstanding young man, so actually we always knew he was going to refuse. But how was he going to get out of it? Equally, he's he's very honourable, and he's not going to go running to Mr Marlowe bleating about it. So it's things like that, I think, that make you feel that the characters take over. They certainly determine how stories will work out. And it's the same with with Dora. Uh, She wasn't exactly crying out for a story of her own, but I felt that she absolutely deserved one. And it was very satisfying, therefore, to give her this story with the Canadian serviceman that seemed to, again, just kind of grow organically out of the sort of person that she is, and I'll say is, because, you know, to me, she's living and breathing. And equally, she doesn't go looking for this acquaintanceship. She doesn't sort of go to a dance in the hope of meeting somebody. It's far from her mind, you know. It all just arises very naturally.
2: Carrying on in the same vein,
0: have any of
2: the characters done anything that has surprised you as you've been writing the series?
0: Oh, my goodness huh um sometimes the dialogue can can surprise me and i'm i'm looking at the screen thinking oh uh, you know i didn't know jim was exactly going to say that but uh, you know I'm, i'm glad he has um that kind of thing happens
2: well i think that's a good place to have another break and after the break we will come back and talk about the audiobook versions
1: this is My Life in Books on AMI-audio with Red Sail. We're back in a moment. You're listening to My Life in Books with Red Sail, only on AMI-audio.
2: This week with my guest, Joanna Toy, author and doyenne of the soap opera. Joe, we were talking just before the break about the... Dialogue in the books. And after 35 years of working in the leading soap operas in the UK, I'm guessing you think in dialogue and you hear the voices as you write.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I don't just hear the dialogue, I say it out loud as I'm writing it, which like, Why am I so thirsty when I've been sitting at the computer for two hours, not talking to anybody, but I've basically been talking to myself. And I did exactly the same when I was writing The Archers, except embarrassingly, I used to do it in the characters' voices. So I'd be doing Joe and Eddie, and then I'd be doing Linda Snell, very, very badly. I won't give you my renditions because that was really important for the speech rhythms. Obviously, characters like Joe and Eddie have got their very particular way of speaking. In terms of the novels, yes, the dialogue is incredibly important to me. Uh, I do speak it out loud and think very much in scenes. In fact, I had to retrain myself on so many things. There are many carryovers from writing uh, as a scriptwriter and serial drama, To writing the novels, dialogue being the principal one. But I had to train myself not to start scenes, as it were, in the book, chapters, with dialogue, but actually to do a bit of scene setting, which was no hardship. You know, it's been really, really enjoyable. And I love the scene setting and describing, uh, you know, when Lily and Jim go to the the posh hotel, the White Lion, exactly what the atmosphere is like on the ground floor of, of Marlowe's with the parquet floor and the perfumes and so on. But my editor was constantly saying to me in in the beginning, "Mm, yeah, can we just have a little bit of, uh, you know, just set the scene here before we go into the dialogue. So I, I was trained in some bad habits as well as some good ones.
2: Now, one of the things that has carried over from The Archers is your relationship with Becky Wright, who you have chosen as your narrator for four of the five Shop Girls novels.
0: Yes that's right. Becky played Nick uh, in The Archers, the wife of Will Grundy, uh, the gamekeeper, and sadly Becky's part was was written out. Nick unfortunately died very young in a, you know, wonderfully played scene by Becky. And um the first book was narrated by a different actress and uh I just had the feeling that Becky would bring something very different to the character and the quality of the books, because I knew what a wonderful radio actress she is and her, her range and just her whole sympathetic attitude. And she's done just a wonderful job. So uh, I absolutely take my hat off to, to Becky and any actress, any actor. I just think they do a wonderful job.
2: Well, let's hear from Becky about her experience of reading your Shop Girls series. Becky Wright, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you very much. It's very nice to be here. Now, in addition
2: to knowing Joe through the Archers, I know that you were especially keen to work on the Shop Girls series for personal reasons.
4: Because I'm from the area and when Joe told me about what it was about, a lot of the places mentioned in the book are places that I spent time in as a child. And also the shop in the book is inspired by my great auntie used to work at. So it's not the actual branch, because I think Joe based it out of Wolverhampton, but my great-auntie used to work at the Solihull branch of Beatties back in the day. And also my family are sort of from around, mainly from Birmingham, actually.
2: And so you must have visited those old Edwardian emporiums as a young girl and had vestiges of that 1940s starched primum properness.
4: Yeah, I think the department store is... A very British national treasure, isn't it? I remember going to, like, Santa's Grotto when I was really small, like three or four years old, or what used to be Lewis's in Birmingham. And I remember going to Rackham's, but it was always a bit of an occasion to go. But they're very unique, and I think they are, you know, very much of their time in quite a wonderful way.
2: And I think that's why the Shop Girls series has really captured the imagination, because it is recent history remembered
4: yeah and it's it's the time that we've lived through like the, some of those buildings haven't changed i mean that they have refits and stuff but they're essentially the same buildings that you know that were around in world war 2 and, and and before so in my lifetime i've been in those buildings and certainly when i read the books i can picture very clearly the world that joe's created very very clearly
2: and they were communities and the customers were part of that community and that means that you have An enormous range of voices to
4: (laughs) play through. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think there's a thing with audiobooks. You get ones that are very narrative and sort of almost lyrical in in the prose and the the worlds they create. And other ones are about the people. So it's like doing an eight, nine hour monologue (laughs) of all these different people. And, you know, Joe's books, Joe wanted them narrated. In a kind of performative way so that these people really lived and you had an idea about what they were like and where they came from. And because she's written a series, it's bringing them to life over a period of time. So, you know, they they grow and develop and hopefully that's enjoyable to listen to, I hope.
2: (laughs) And so you actually get to be an entire theatre cast of characters.
4: (laughs) I did say to Jo that we were... She um, had a little chat with me before I did. I can't remember which one of them it was. And I said, um, I was talking about voices. She said, Oh, I think so and so should sound like this. And I said, Well, I've got five people already sounding like that with that accent. And I said, Sure, how many characters are there? And I think we counted there were 72 people, including the incidentals at one point. <laughs> you know, just even just the people it alluded to of all these different people she brought to life. But yeah, sometimes it does feel like a cast of thousands in your head. And sometimes I will stop recording going, who am I? Okay. Because I always have like like a list at the side of <laughs> reference points in case I forget entirely where I am.
2: <laughs> and do you have a favourite character voice from the series?
4: Oh, <laughs> um, I rather like Gladys. <laughs> I think Gladys is rather sweet. I just like the character. Yeah, and Phyllis the Scouser who came in and basically whipped everybody into shape in the last one. I was like, I like her, she can stay. And I like, you know, those really broad accents, you know, like Beryl and Dora as well, because that's how my family sounds. That's very familiar to me. And I think it's also, it's not an accent you hear very much in entertainment or on the telly, you know. It's one people shy away from because of, you know, various, you know, prejudices about it. But I think it's rather beautiful. Um, But yeah, it's a big comfort to me. So any of the, the broader accents remind me of my family.
2: And, of course, one thing that you couldn't have known at the beginning of all of this is that you too were going to have to hide in your bunker at home.
3: Oh, God!
4: Uh, Keep calm and carry on. Do you know what? I'm not going to lie. It was a nightmare. (laughs) I'm really not going to lie about it. People think it's really simple, do I mean, I, I find, even though I do a lot of them, of all the things I do, I find audiobooks the hardest because it is just you. And if you take that and you know when when because uh, I was doing, I think it was wartime. Yeah, it was wartime. For the shop was in wartime conditions, just as the lo- first lockdown happened. And I literally was asked, "Do you have a microphone?" And I was like, "Sorry, what? <laughs> Do you have?" A mic-? And so I cobbled something together. But also, I live in a terraced house with lots of noise going on, and it's very hard every time somebody slams a door, every time somebody turns on a tap, every time somebody is living their life it ruins your take and I also had some tech problems I had a very old laptop and I actually recorded one of the chapters in wartime seven times seven times I actually shudder thinking about it but yeah it wasn't ideal it was nobody's fault it was just the way it worked out but I had I had flashbacks over that for a while and I kind of got to one point where I went I'm never doing an audiobook again this is it I'm never doing it again <laughs>
2: Well, for you, the war is nearly over. Just one more <laughs> book in the Shop Girls series.
4: Yeah. <laughs> and
2: hopefully you'll be back in an independent studio rather than that, your home studio soon.
4: I've yeah, I, I've actually been the last two books were recorded in a studio. Yeah, I only had to do the one at home. So I'm very grateful. I'm very, very grateful to be back in.
2: Becky Wright, thank you so much for giving us some more insight into the world of being a talking book narrator and for being a guest on the show today.
4: Oh, pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Thanks again to Becky Wright. And now back to Joanna Toy. Jo, I know that it was particularly important for you that the series should be made accessible to those of us who can't read print and be made into audiobooks.
0: I feel absolutely passionate about this. My dad was blind towards the end of his life. He had a very unfortunate ocular history. Uh, he had a badly repaired detached retina. And then he had um, coma, cataracts, macular degeneration. You name it, he had it. And like so many people uh, who were sight impaired, he resisted until the very last moment calling himself blind. But it became clear that he couldn't read print. He absolutely loved theatre and he loved the spoken word and he loved music. And whenever you went, you know, the the radio was never off in his house. Uh, He'd been widowed quite young, my mum died quite young. So it meant a huge amount to me that the books were going to be released uh, as paperback, as ebooks, and as audio, all at the same time. That's the other thing. I think it must be horrible to have to, to wait when people are talking about a book that you desperately want to access and you can't. And I'm very lucky that my publishers, HarperCollins, just, you know, do that as a given. I guess the great thing about Kindle for those who are not um, totally sight impaired is that you can make the print bigger. So that is good. And the books are certainly available in the UK uh, in large print. So maybe that will come globally at some point. That would be wonderful. As
2: you say, all five of them are available in audio. And I know that you are hard at work on the sixth and I hope not the final one.
0: Well, um, the sixth is actually uh, completed. Uh, I've sent in my uh, my manuscript, which I love to call it still. And I'm just waiting for my editor's notes. That will be released in spring of next year, 2022. As to whether it's the last, I don't know. I mean, I feel I've really probably taken these characters as far as I can for now. Shall I leave it like that?
2: Do you have any ideas for another series?
0: I find that really hard to answer. I've actually asked my editor for a little bit of thinking time. I think it's just I've got to sort of put these characters to bed first. I can't imagine creating another world that I'm going to enjoy being in as much. But then I have thought that about everything I've done. Every soap that I've I've worked on, particularly the Archers, but you know I wrote for Crossroads back in the day and Doctors and EastEnders on, on television. Here, uh, I've enjoyed it at the time and thought, oh, this is what I want to do. So I just need the right setting and scenario to suggest itself. I was so lucky with Marlowe's being able to base that on a real. Store That gave me such a brilliant jumping off point because I love the research. There are always so many nuggets that you can take away and spin into gold. So I'm, I'm waiting really for things to open up a bit here because a lot of the museums and archives have been closed and they have a huge backlog. So I do have an idea that I had started to play around with before the pandemic struck. So I'll have to see whether I'm still inspired by that. But it's a bit watch this space.
2: Well, I shall certainly be keeping my fingers crossed, as I'm sure will your legion of fans around the world. And I hope that after the break, you'll come back and share the books of your life. I will.
1: Catch up with this and every episode of My Life in Books by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books. More from Red Sale and his guest in a moment. back to My Life in Books on AMI-audio with host Red Sale.
2: So far, Joanna Toy, we've talked about the books that you have written, but now it's time to share the books that have inspired you with the books of your life. So, was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author?
0: Well, you do know this is a really unfair question to ask someone who's a kind of bookaholic – so it's really been so difficult to pin things down. I think the one that in terms of answering the specific question, which one made me want to become a writer, I have to pick Little Women by Louisa M. Olcott. It was the first book I'd read, which had a character in it who shared my name because I'm known as Joe really widely. And of course, Joe in the book, uh, one of four sisters, is the one who desperately wants to be a writer. And although Jo is far more tomboyish than I ever was, I was a very bookish, shy, reserved child, which, I mean, in itself was admirable and enviable. I just wanted to be much more outgoing. She tucks herself away in the attic. It's a wonderful line that's just stayed with me forever, where she's in the attic reading and writing and she's eating russet apples, which has just been a passion with me ever since. I'm just like, oh, they're russets. They're in season. Yeah, I must get some. So. I would pick Little Women for that reason. I think also I envied the girls their sisterhood, because I'm an only child. And uh, it just seemed wonderful to have those sisters, problematic as they are. I I like the hurly-burly of family life.
2: And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread?
0: So many, so many. I could pick almost any one of Daphne du Maurier. But since I have to pick one, I'm going to go for My Cousin Rachel, which I think is just a masterpiece. I expect a lot of people know it or know of it. But it concerns the most brilliant mystery, really, wrapped up in a typical Daphne du Maurier atmosphere of building tension. It's essentially a mystery about a a young man who has this cousin Rachel, who comes to live with him. Uh, She has been married to his uncle and guardian to whom he's been very close. And um, a relationship develops between them. And the clever thing about the book, the genius of Daphne du Maurier is that you never quite know whether Rachel is the character that others portray her as, or whether she is genuine as she seems and sounds and whether Philip, the young man in the book, is actually unhealthily obsessed with her, and therefore willing to believe she is a good thing. And Daphne du Maurier just plays with your emotions throughout. I just find it, every time I read it, absolutely gripping.
2: And finally, is there a book that you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners?
0: Yes, I read David Nicholls' Sweet Sorrow recently. It's his latest, and compared with his last one, Us, which is about an an older couple and their son, this goes back to the sort of territory that he's probably known for, a younger protagonist. It's just brilliant, classic, vintage David Nichols, I think. It's a novel that reads so easily, you're absorbed into it from the very first sentence, which of course is what you want in any novel. It's actually kind of a meditation, really, on young love and that awful, poignant experience of being an adolescent, which he just pins so well. It's a character looking back on his first experience of love, and it's framed around a production of Romeo and Juliet, which this character, this young boy gets involved in. And he's, a, he's a teenager who's just left school, and uh, he's from the local Comprehensive the play is being put on largely by sort of arty types from the public school nearby, but also with the kind of art crowd from his comprehensive school, so he does know some of the some of the players. He gets involved, he gets involved with the young woman who's playing Juliet. They play out their own kind of Romeo and Juliet story. It all ends badly, not as badly as in Shakespeare. But it's just it's brilliant, it's poignant, it's so funny. Uh, there's something on every page that will just ring true. That's all I can say about it. Joanna Toy, thank you so
2: much for sharing your obvious love of books with us today and for sharing a wealth of insights into your Shopgirl series.
0: Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. It's just a joy to have so long to talk about books.
2: Alas, it's time to turn the page on this chapter of My Life in Books. But I'll be back with another author, Same time, same place, next month. Thanks again to my guests, Joanna Toy and Becky Wright, to producer Sean Preece, and to you for listening. Farewell until next time, and whatever you're reading, I hope it's a page-turner.
1: Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favorite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this program by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time.